Okay. Uh, at this time, we'll have our second message, a full sermon from Mr. Curtis Whiteley, entitled, The Work of the Lord. Mr. Whiteley. Thank you, Reggie. Good afternoon. It's good to see everyone here, as it always is, on another beautiful Sabbath day. A little bit light today, but that's okay. Uh, I'm going to, as Reggie mentioned, the work of the word is the title of this message, and we're going to continue on. Back in April, I started a sermon series uh, over First Thessalonians, and so it's been a little, a little while since I spoke last. Uh, about a month or so. So I thought that I would start off today, today by reviewing some of the points that we have went over in some of our previous messages on the book of First Thessalonians. But I also just wanted to review, because maybe you weren't here, uh, what First Thessalonians is all about, how it came to be. Uh, the Apostle Paul was the author of this epistle. He established the church in Thessalonica on a second missionary journey, and you can read about that in Acts, the 17th chapter. And when he went there, uh, he had two traveling companions, Silas and Timothy. And eventually, after they left Thessalonica, because it doesn't seem like they were there just a whole, like a, a long, long time, uh, he would eventually send Timothy back to the city to get a report on how the church was doing and encouraging them. And when Timothy came back, he was very happy and overjoyed to hear about the steadfast faith they had uh, maintained since Paul and them had left. And he wrote this letter in response of hearing the news of their faith in around 50 to 51 A.D. or somewhere around there. So in the last three messages, we got through thir or 12 passages of chapter 2 of 1 Thessalonians. It took us a little while. I felt like there was a lot there. Today, we'll probably get through about one and a half passage. So it's not going to, we're kind of continuing that on. There's a lot in here, uh, and I want to really take advantage of some of the things that I think that Paul gives us in some of the principles that we can apply to our life. And so in the last three messages, we talked about this idea of walking worthily. In chapter 2, verses 1 through 12, Paul talks about, his conduct and Silas and Timothy's conduct when they were with the Thessalonians. And so we talked about walking with a purpose and walking with boldness and courage and walking with integrity and walking with love. And we looked a little bit about what that looks like, walking with love, meaning walking with gentleness or walking in a way that seeks to serve others and walking in a way that is selfless. And so today we're going to focus on that idea of the work of God's word in our lives. And I have three points that I want to, want to cover. But this here, this word, is one of the most precious things I think we would all agree that we have, that God has given us. And I think that when we read the scriptures, I think that sometimes living in America, it's easy to maybe overlook that fact. Because maybe we forget about the history of what it took to just have the right and the ability or the reality of this word being able to be in the hands of just common people. And if you've ever read the story about the history of the Bible, I'm not talking about the original writing, that's a story in and of itself, but how the Bible came to be in the hands of pretty much everyone or in all the different languages, it's a fascinating story. 
So we're going to pick it up in verses 13. I'm going to read 13 through 16 of 1 Thessalonians, the second chapter. Paul says, For this reason we also thank God without ceasing, because when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you welcomed it not as the word of men, but at, as it is in truth the word of God, which also effectively works in you who believe. For you, brethren, became imitators of the churches of God, which are in Judea and Christ, Jesus. For you also suffered the same things from your own countrymen, just as they did from the Judeans, who killed both the Lord Jesus, the Lord Jesus and their own prophets, and have persecuted us, and they do not please God and are contrary to all men, forbidding us to speak to the Gentiles that they may be saved, so as always to fill up the measure of their sins, but wrath has come upon them to the uttermost. And so the first point I have is the very first words that Paul says in chapter 2, verse 13, is make it a habit to give thanks to God regularly. We read in verse 13 how thankful that Paul and his traveling companions were that the Thessalonians had taken to heart the message of the gospel. As we see in verse 13, Paul says, For this reason we also thank God without ceasing. Paul says that they were thankful to God without ceasing. And this is a term that's used four times in the New Testament, this without ceasing, this you know, constantly. All of them were used by Paul, and three of their uses come here in this epistle in 1 Thessalonians. Two of them in reference to being thankful to God, and one of them in reference to pray without ceasing, as we will see a little bit later in chapter 5. This word means without interruption, continually or regularly, or as my favorite definition, which I think captures the best by Robert Muntz, who is a uh, kind of a, a Greek expositor. He has an expository dictionary of Greek words. He describes this word as meaning by an unwavering practice. And what this is simply describing is, is an ongoing habit. Paul had made it a regular habit, an unwavering practice to thank God, to pray to God, to be in communion with God in prayer and acknowledging the things that God has done for him. And so as I look at this, and I see Paul use this, you know, we constantly thank God. We, we pray to God without ceasing. I started thinking about the idea of habits. We know that habits are a big part of human nature, right? All of us have habits. Some of them are good. Some of them are not so good. I actually went online and looked at some habits of human being, like typical human being habits. And there's some, there's some tests out there you can actually take of, all the different strange habits that people have. But one thing that I think we would all agree with is that habits is a big part of this human nature that we have. Some of them are habits that really don't take a lot. They, 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 we don't even try to form them. I have kind of a bad habit that I don't really remember, remember forming, biting my fingernails. And I remember... I remember all my life my mom being annoyed at me because she could never break me from that habit. And it gets a lot worse when the Oklahoma Sooners are playing football. <laughs> so we have habits that don't even, we don't even know we form. We, we don't even think about them. We just do them without even thinking. 
But some other habits, we, we go to great lengths sometimes to create in our life, right? It takes some discipline. It takes some effort. Maybe it's exercising every day on a regular basis. That's sometimes a tough habit for some people to start. And after a while, it becomes commonplace. If you do it long enough, if you practice it. You know, baseball players, basketball players, football players, athletes, soccer players, they all make it a habit to practice on their particular craft so they can become better. And so we see there's lots of habits that require us to make an effort to implement into our lives. Brushing your teeth every day. That's not really that tough of a habit. But until you get in that routine to do it, it's easy maybe to forget until you've done it long enough to where it's almost second nature and you don't even think about it, you just do it. Putting your seatbelt on every time you get into a car. All of these require us to make a point, at least the ones that I just mentioned, the, the, the last few, make a, they require us to make a point to implement, the, implement them into our lives. And I was thinking, because I read an article as I was preparing this, this message from a website called the Gospel Coalition. And the article was entitled, How Habits Shape and Show Your Heart. And it was written by a guy by the name of David Mathis, and it was published uh, a few years ago, I guess almost five years ago, in 2016, or, or more than five years ago. But in this article, Mathis commented and said, your habits are, in fact, one of the most important things about you. Those repeated actions you take over and over, almost mindlessly, reveal your true self over time as much as anything else. Our habits are windows into the deep things of our souls. Now, obviously, that's not scripture. But when I started thinking about that, I started thinking that there is a lot of truth to that, at least in my opinion. Because your habits kind of reveal what's important to you. Your habits kind of reveal what's on your mind. And we have to ask the question, what do the habits that we have reveal about us? Or we can even put it the other way around. What habits that we don't have that we should reveal about us? One thing that we get from Paul is that he was a habitual individual with some very important things. He was habitual in his prayer to God. He was habitual in his praise of God, and he's following after the footsteps of the ultimate role model in Jesus Christ. Luke, the fifth chapter. Luke, the fifth chapter, verse 15, says this. After Jesus had just got done healing a leper, he said, however, the report went around concerning him all the more, and great multitudes came together to hear and to be healed by him of their infirmities. So he himself often withdrew into the wilderness and prayed. And we see this over and over again. We see Jesus praying to the Father, praising the Father, taking time to be intimate with the Father and thanking the Father for what the Father had given him. And so as I looked at this and as this word without ceasing popped up to me and I, I looked at how Paul had said this word twice in reference to thanking God, and then once in reference to for us to pray without ceasing. And then you go back and you look at all the different habitual things that Jesus did in relation to his praise of God. It got me thinking about how often...
do we make it a point to make it a habit in our life to acknowledge God and thank Him for the things that He has given us. For the Word of God that He's given us through all the history as, as, as you know, I, I will say as, as I was looking at this and thinking about what it took for this book, these books that's contained into the 66 books of the Bible, the 27 documents in the New Testament and the 39 documents of the Old Testament form the Word of God. And as I was thinking about that, how thankful we should all be continually to God for that. And how that thankfulness, I think, will change, will, will, will help cultivate in us that mind of Christ even more. Because it's something that Jesus did. And it helps us realize our complete and total you know, reliance on God for everything that we have. My second main point is to respond to God's word. Now most of us in here have probably been baptized and accepted Christ as our savior. But 1 Thessalonians reading on chapter 13 or verse 13 says, "For this reason we also thank God without ceasing because when you received the word of God which you heard from us, you welcomed it not as the word of men, but as it is in truth, the word of God, which also effectively works in you who believe. And these two words that Paul uses here, receive and welcome, are two Greek words that are very similar, but they do have some differences. The word translated received in the Greek is a word paralambano. I've never been very good at pronouncing Greek, but that's the word, and it refers to receiving something from another, and in particular, it was a technical term used to describe the reception of some sort of authoritative traditions. And in Christian circles, the Word of God. The Word of God. And we see this, this, this term used by Paul in reference to instruction in many instances throughout his letters. The text says they didn't just receive it, though. They didn't just receive this authoritative doctrine, teaching, that came, that was the very word of God. Paul emphasizes their attitude when receiving this instruction as welcoming it gladly. And this word welcomed is the Greek word dekomai, which stresses the manner in which they accepted it. And it means that they didn't just accept it, but they embraced it. They embraced this word that Paul had brought to them. And the reason they embraced it was because they recognized the reality of what it was. Now, we weren't there, obviously. But there's something about the preaching of Paul that they recognized was not of human origin. These people just weren't silly people that just would go with any wind of doctrine. These people in Thessalonica they had probably heard of all different kinds of religious jargon. They had probably heard prophets say this, say that. They had probably heard about the Jewish God and, and what the Jews had to say. But they recognized something about the words of Paul and the manner in which he said it. And he didn't say it as a salesman. We read that. We read that in previous messages. Paul didn't come to Thessalonica and he wasn't a salesman. It wasn't because he was such a great speaker that he, he lured them in. There was something about the message that he spoke that was God-breathed. 
And we see this here in the scriptures. The reason they embraced it was because they recognized the reality of what it was. Not just some words of men, but the very word of God. And in the Greek construction, commentators have noted that there's a, there's, a, there's a really sharp distinction being made between the two ideas of words of men and words of God. You see, Paul probably tried to make an, uh, 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 took, went to great lengths to really stress this because he probably was often accused of just going around and teaching his own doctrine and his own opinions. We see that he has to sometimes defend himself in, in, throughout his letters. He didn't want any confusion. And in this chapter alone, Paul says three times that this message is the gospel of God. This message is the gospel of God. Now, one thing we have to remember is this. They had the word of God, at least the Old Testament, during this period of time. And the words that were the New Testament were in the process of being written. But most people like us, just every day, you know, going into the synagogue, they probably didn't grow up reading this themselves. They probably didn't grow up where, you know, you, know, you went home, you had dinner, and then you laid down, and you, you, know, you opened up your, your personal scroll. That probably didn't exist. It was expensive. And not only that, you had to have people in the synagogue that actually were literate that could read it. So there was a lot of communal reading, and that's how people learned. They would hear the stories. They, would, they, they, they were excellent listeners because you had to be. If you wanted to learn because you weren't literate, you had to listen to these stories over and over and over again. And that's how they received the word of God. But Paul here three times wants it to be clear that his words were not his own words, but the very words of God. Because there's many of them that probably rejected his words and thought it was just his opinions. Which makes me think of a similar situation what we find ourselves here today, right? Obviously, we all do have Bibles, an abundance of them. It's translated into almost every language in the world. But it's not much different today, right? In terms of people rejecting this as being just the words of men and not what it is, the word of God. It's not much different. We see many people today reject the Bible and claim it's just man-made traditions. They think it's just a book of fairy tales, myths. Maybe they were just, you know, just written and devised by humans. You know, the book might have some wisdom here and there, right? There might be some wisdom here and there, but it certainly is not the words of God. And unfortunately, I think to some extent, some parts of Christianity has helped that because there's definitely some man-made traditions associated with some parts of Christianity that are not in the Bible. That are not in the Bible. Let's go to 1 Corinthians, the second chapter. 1 Corinthians, the second chapter. Because there's a key in this whole thing. You see, God was at work, not just in Paul, but he was at work with the Thessalonians. And we know that because of their reception of it. They received it because God enabled them to see it. First. Corinthians, the second chapter, verse 13 says, These things we also speak, not in words which man's wisdom teaches, but which the Holy Spirit teaches, comparing spiritual things with spiritual, but the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him. 
nor can he know them because they are spiritually discerned. Verse 15, but he who is spiritual judges all things, yet he himself rightly judge, is rightly judged by no one. For who has known the mind of the Lord that he may instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. And we see that there is a prerequisite in understanding and accepting this. There is, that God has to, that that there is something about the the spirit of the flesh that looks at this and thinks it's foolishness. It's silly and it rejects it. But Paul explains in 2 Timothy, later on, that traveling companion that he had when he was here in Thessalonica, he writes to Timothy in 2 Timothy, the second, or third chapter rather, verse 16, he explains the true nature of the scriptures. And verse 16, we've all read this probably many times before. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. And so here we see that Paul tells us two things about the nature of God's word. Number one, all scripture is inspired by God. Not Every inspired scripture, that's been some people's interpretation, meaning like, well, some of it's inspired, some of it's not. No, all scripture is inspired by God. The word inspired is the only time in the entire New Testament that it's used. And it is theopneustos, meaning God breathed. It means that the scriptures, all scriptures, have been breathed out by God. It's the only time that this word is used. And rather than the scriptures being an invention of man or came out by the, you know, the will of man, we read in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 20 and 21, knowing this first, that no prophecy of scripture is of any private interpretation. For prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. And the word moved here is interesting because it's the same word that's used in Acts, the 27th chapter, verse 15, referring to a ship that was moved along or driven along by the wind. So as the wind moves a ship along, so God's Spirit moved the writers of the Bible to write God's message. And we know that God used individual personalities to do this. You know, when we think about that analogy, right, of a ship being moved along or driven along, the captain, the people on the boat, they're not just sitting by idle. They're doing stuff. They're partaking in the ship's movement. But it's the wind that's driving them. It's the wind. The second thing that we see that Paul tells us about the nature of Scripture is that all scripture is profitable, which means beneficial or useful. There are four things that are listed by Paul here as the scriptures being profitable. Number one, the scriptures are profitable to teach doctrine, to teach instruction, to teach doctrine, showing us what is right. The Bible shows us what is right. Number two, the scriptures are profitable for reproof or rebuke, showing us what is not right. Third, the scriptures are profitable for correcting, showing us how to make it right. And fourth, 
the scriptures are profitable for instruction showing us how to keep it right. The scriptures are profitable for all things that helps us grow in the stature of Christ. We also need to remember that the scriptures are the only offensive weapon that we are given in Ephesians 6 regarding the armor of God. As Paul tells us in Ephesians 6 that the word of God is the sword of the spirit. And likewise the book of Hebrews tells us in chapter 4 verse 12 for the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. But if we are going to look at this, if we're going to receive these scriptures, the word of God, there is one thing that's really, really important. We must study it. We must study it. We must study it and we must interpret it. We've been given God's word. We've been given God's spirit. But God still expects us, obviously, to study his word, to search his word, to make it a habit to thank God, to make it a habit to pray, but also to make it a habit to study this word that he has given us and interpret it. Because if we're going to study it, we want to interpret it so we can apply it. Here's a quote from a guy by the name of John Balkin. He wrote a book called Understanding Scripture. On page 8, he said, Interpreting the Bible is one of the most important issues facing Christians today. It lies behind what we believe, how we live, how to get on together, and what we have to offer to the world. I think all of us would agree that we've probably seen examples of the Bible being misinterpreted. The Bible being made to just say whatever people want it to say. And we understand that that's an issue that has gotten a lot of people in trouble. I also think that we would agree that interpretation, along with studying, is essential for teaching the Bible appropriately and properly and the truth that the Bible contains. In order to do this, though, and I'm a full believer that God inspires us, that God gives us his spirit to interpret his, his word, but I also believe that God expects us to do our part, to study it, to look at what the words mean, to back it up and look at Scripture upon Scripture compared to other Scripture. How does it compare to the whole? We all would probably also agree that the original interpretation should be rooted in the original intent of the author. We want to know, for example, we're studying Paul. We want to know what Paul meant. We want to know what Paul meant. I like this quote from Gordon Fee and Douglas Stewart, reading the Bible for all it's worth. The Bible can never mean what it never meant. And I think that's true. The Bible can never mean what it never meant. So it's important for us to take seriously our Bible study and our interpretation. And we've had different studies before about, you know, the importance of Bible study methods and things like that. And I thought today, in looking at this message, as we are thankful for the word that we've been given. We also, in the day and age we live in, I think have to be careful and, and take it seriously, not just the study of the Bible, but seriously our interpretation of the Bible. 
So interpretation is essential for understanding and teaching the Bible properly, but it's also essential for moving beyond just a simple observation. Observation is discovering what is there. Interpretation is deciding what it means and how can we apply it. We can think about this from a surgeon. Right? A surgeon, a doctor, they look at somebody that comes in and they assess their patient. They look to see, you know, what's going on with this person. Maybe they observe that there's a problem because the person's losing blood. Maybe they observe that there's a growth, there's some discolored tissue, there's a blockage, there's a lump. So they can observe that there's something going on with this patient. But the question would remain, what does it mean? How is it to be explained? What kind of growth is it? What is causing this problem? Before the surgeon can make any decisions about a plan of action, they have to interpret what's going on. They have to get to the heart of the matter and find out what's causing this problem. And in the same way, that's how we have to be with the scriptures. We have to study the scriptures, take great care of what Paul tells us in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 15, rightly dividing the word. We're going to read that real quick. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 15 says, Be diligent to present yourself approved to God, a worker who does not need to be ashamed, right, rightly dividing the word of truth. This is a scripture that means basically cut, cut it straight. This word, rightly dividing, is the Greek word orthotomata, which means, ortho means straight, and tomia means cut. And there's a quote from John MacArthur that I think really helps explain this because Paul was a tent maker. And MacArthur in his book called The Charismatics says, because Paul is a tent maker, he may have been using an expression that was tied in with his trade. When Paul made tents, he used certain patterns. In those days, tents were made from the skins of animals and a patchwork sort of design. Every piece would have to be cut and fit together properly. Paul was simply saying, if one doesn't cut the piece right, the whole won't fit together properly. It's the same thing with the scripture. If one doesn't interpret correctly the different parts, the whole message won't, uh, won't come through correctly. In the Bible study interpretation, the Christian should cut straight. He should be precise and accurate. And so we see that as a great example of what Paul tells us. He's using that possibly using that language that a tent maker would use, that you have to be precise and accurate for it to work appropriately like it should. So my third main point. My third main point. Allow the word of God to perform its work in us. Allow the word of God to perform its work in us. Paul tells us, the word of God, which also effectively works in you who believe. And some other translations, translations translate a little bit differently. Like one of them, the Net Bible, which is at work among you who believe. Or then as the New American Standard Bible, which also performs its work in you who believe. And this, work, this word work, kind of hard, as Reggie was talking earlier. This is a difficult 
play on words work and word. The word work that's used here in the Greek is a word energio, which we get basically the word energy from in the English language. And it means or it presents and it's talking about an active power or principle. An active power or principle. Gene Green, who's the commentator for the Pillar New Testament Commentary, said the Thessalonians embrace the message as the word of God, and now this gospel brings about a divine work within their lives. A divine work within their lives. There's three ways that we can see that this message, this work, was doing a work presently in the Thessalonians, even as Paul was writing this letter. We see that the Thessalonians, number one, they turn from idolatry. They turn from idolatry for people, in verse 9 of chapter 1, for people everywhere report how you welcomed us and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. This is an example of that work that was being performed in these individuals. Secondly, we see it in the fruits of the Spirit that they displayed in their lives in chapter 1, verse 3, when Paul says, because we recall in the presence of our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and endurance of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. They were demonstrating the fruits of the Spirit, which is an example and a demonstration of the work that was being done in these individuals. And third, we see it in their steadfastness in the face of persecution. Chapter 14 of chapter 2 which we've already read. For you became imitators, brothers and sisters, of God's churches in Christ Jesus that are in Judea because you too suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they, in fact, did from the Jews. And so there is this work that was begun when Paul brought the message. Paul, Silas, and Timothy brought this message. And even as Paul is writing to them, this work is continuing. And I want us to all think back about the work that was begun in us. We all have our own conversion story, right? We all have our own story that's unique to ourselves on how God called us out of the darkness into his light. We know that the scriptures tells us this idea that there was a point in time where we realized that we were guilty, that we had sinned, that we had trespassed about, uh, against God's law, and that we needed reconciliation to God. And the only way to have reconciliation was through His Son, Jesus Christ. And, and we learn that God loved us so much, and He desired so much to have that relationship with us, that He provided that reconciliation and what it took. We learn that as this process took place, a lot of us became familiar with that term, the old man, right? We put off that old man. And so we see this is what the Thessalonians are doing. That, that old man that they lived in, old woman, idolatry, probably sexual immorality. We see Paul later wants to, again, reiterate to abstain from that because it was such a part of their culture. We see that in our own lives that God has begun a work in us. And it's unique. And all of us have different stories that we could probably tell about what God had done, what, what we were like before, where we were. What was important to us? What was our life consumed of back then? And I can tell you this. I was lucky enough to be brought up in church. This church, in fact. 
Uh, and I had parents that loved God and taught us about God. But I didn't truly, genuinely appreciate it. I thought I did. You know, I, I believe that there was a God, and I believe that Jesus was the way to God and things like that, but those were intellectual ideas. They weren't convictions of my heart. And so as I grew up as a young teenager, as a lot of people do, I was focused on myself. I was focused on, you know, what my desires were, materialism. I wasn't super material in, like, cars and things like that, but materialism in the physical things, of the carnal things of this world. You know, what drove me, my sports and things like that. And that was the sin, that was, that was life to me. You know, playing football was, you know, that if, if I couldn't play football, I didn't want to live. You know, that, that's how important it was to me. And I'm kind of being a little sarcastic. But you kind of get what I mean is, is that I was focused on myself. And I liked coming to church, and I cared about people. But inwardly, I was more focused on myself. I didn't have a Lord over my, I was my own God. And a lot of us probably can, can relate to that. We were our own God. And finally, at the age of 19, uh, through many different, I've explained it many times before, I, I became serious about my faith through a series of things that took place uh, and was baptized on Pentecost Day when I was 19 years old in 2004. And so it wasn't until then, though, that Jesus was truly the Lord of my life. When God began that work in me, and I, you know, we can all talk about how, like, well, God, we all have unique stories, but we never know exactly when God began that work. Maybe it was at birth. Maybe it was, you know, little things in life that they were throw, he was throwing at us. And at the, 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 the you know, it, it might have took us a little while to respond. I've heard many stories about people talking about how they had, you know, were doing Bible study for years before they responded to the call, you know, and they would believe it, but it was an intellectual problem until they finally were pricked to the heart and converted by the heart that prompted them, that drove them to respond to it. Another aspect of the word of God is that, and we've already kind of touched upon this, is that it continues it continues. It's not just a one-time thing. Even after Paul and his traveling companions had left Thessalonica, we see that Paul uses this phrase, the work, energeo, the act of power, and he uses it as an implication that this was not a one-time thing, but it was a continuing thing. That that work that had begun in them when he was there, when he first presented that message, had continued in, even in their absence. And this is true of us. This is true of us. This is the nature of the gospel message in individuals' lives. Let's go to Mark, the fourth chapter. Because Jesus gives a parable that's about the kingdom of God, but I think it also applies to us as individuals. Mark, the fourth chapter, verse 26, called the parable of the growing seed. Paul, not Paul, excuse me. Jesus said this, and he said... In verse 26, the kingdom of heaven is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground and should sleep by night and rise by day, and the seed should sprout and grow. He himself does not know how, for the earth yields crops by itself, first the blade, then the head, after that the full grain in the head. But when the grain ripens, immediately he puts the sickle because the harvest has come. Now obviously, 
this parable is talking about the broad principle of the gospel message of the kingdom of God. But I think it also applies to us as individual Christians. A farmer, you know, I don't have a lot of experience with farming. We all, you know, these individuals that were in the audience of Jesus did because they were primarily agriculture, uh, agricultural societies. A farmer who plants a seed, they don't stay there at the farm or out on that field 24-7. They plant the seed and they, they do so on fertile ground or what they hope to be fertile ground, right? And the farmer may come back and check on it. And in this day and age, with the technology that we have, uh, farmers, you know, in history didn't have that technology. They're going to come back and they're going to do different things. But the interesting thing is the growing is due to the innate nature of the seed. The seed is growing because it's what it's receiving. It's receiving nutrients from the ground. It's receiving rain from the sky. And so the innate nature, the, the, the DNA of that seed is to react when it's in the appropriate conditions. And so the word of God has been planted in us. And through Christ, uh, God's spirit, through our you know, cultivating it with Bible study, cultivating it with fellowship with believers, fellowship with members of that organism that we are a part of, God's church. It's an ongoing growth that's supposed to take place. As it receives nourishment from the ground's nutrients and water from the rain, the crop springs up and grows into full, ripe maturity. And the same is true for the gospel message or the word of God as it performs its work in our lives. I like this last little quote here by Robert Thomas, the Expositor Bible Commentary. Uh, Once received, this word of God becomes an active power operating continually in the believer's life. When it is at work in those who believe, there is a change in behavior and constant fruitfulness. Constant fruitfulness. Now, I think that we would all agree there's times in our life where we might seem to be stifling some of that growth or stifling some of that work that had been begun by God because we're still human. We can still get in the way. That old man can still try to get in the way. And those selfish desires, those selfish inclinations can sometimes you know, come and pop back up. But in conclusion, I want us to not underestimate the power of God's word, which is living as we just read, which has the power to save souls. Continually, the scripture tells us that the word of God has the power to save. It does, because it's living. It's a living word. We must continually thank God for what he has provided us and the spirit that he has given us to be spiritually minded to receive and welcome his precious precepts. Remember, we must respond to God's word and allow it to perform the work in us as it is living and has the power to continually transform us. And that's what we're called to do, to continually be transformed in our mind. Continually be transformed in our mind as we strive to more and more grow in the nature and stature of Jesus Christ, Father, Son.